says, Now I commend you because you remembered me and everything and maintained the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head was shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then he should, or she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or to shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since it is, he is in the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, a man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. This is the word of God. It'll be interesting to see what he has to say today on this. <laughs> Children, you're dismissed to Children's Church. Thank Brad for that last bit of introduction or not. Yeah. <laughs> I started on this two weeks ago. Was unable to be here last Sunday, and VJ uh, went ahead with uh, the first part of chapter 12, which I really appreciated his message and uh, got to listen to it online. And by the way, if you are at stuck at home for some reason on a Sunday morning, you can go to our website and there's two locations both uh, uh, that you can punch either one and, and, and get to uh, the sermon and it is broadcast live. And uh, if for some reason that day something happens that we're missing somebody that's uh, doing some of the work and stuff, but uh, you can pick it up later, but you can always catch up with it. Um, Two weeks ago, I started this uh, message in, in the sense of of First uh, Corinthians uh, eleven two through sixteen, but I found it necessary to uh, actually just to get the full gist of things to go back uh, uh, three verses into uh, chapter uh, ten, and I'm going to do that same thing again this morning just to to kind of hold the context together. Uh, verse 31 of chapter 10 says, So whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, 
do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Paul's purpose, his calling, all of his preaching and teaching is that many might be saved. And that's the emphasis of, of, of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians has, had gotten you know, some things right, but they had also, uh, I, I think I used the word uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, developed a, a group of super-Christians, if you will. People who had it in their mind that they were, uh, you know, they knew all of the words, they knew all of the things that they needed to do, and they were free to, to do whatever they felt like doing. Uh, and they, they were covered by God's grace in one way or another. And as, an, as a result, there were many factions going on and many divisions. And that's all been addressed in prior chapters, but uh, Paul is, is making sure that we grasp a hold of that our main purpose is to glorify God. Are what we do together and the way we treat each other and the way we minister to each other revealing an attitude of worshiping God and loving one another and putting the other first? And so, keep that in mind as we go through the, this uh, part of chapter 11 now. It is, you know, he starts off, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. In, chapter, in the last uh, part of, of chapter 10 actually goes into chapter 11. Be imitators of me as I am imitator of Christ. In other words, Paul is saying, Where I imitate Christ, follow my instruction. Follow my teaching. Follow my actions. By the way, that says something to us all, right? How important are your actions as well as your words? And uh, so, you know, the things that we do, the things that we read, the things that we watch, all of these types of things. As I was going through this, I, I remember a, a song from Keith Green that had one statement in it, you love the light of your TV more than you love me. Uh, God speaking to us as a culture today. And uh, I think, you know, how easy that is for us to fall into that trap. And so, the question mark comes down to uh, self-examination. Are we really following after Christ in all that we do with the desire to glorify God? We all know the answer for that. We all know where, who, who we are and, and where we fall short. And, and so it's not that we are striving to say, oh, I, I, you know, I'm going to be perfect. you know. But the idea is to strive to, when we catch ourselves in a, in a way that is not following Christ or not glorifying God, that we would call on the Holy Spirit daily to convict us of those things so that we can say, oh, that's not what God wants me to do, or that's not the way God wants me to treat this person. Or for that matter, that's not the way God wants me to think. So, uh, again, following after Christ, glorifying God. And that's really essentially, uh, over the next few chapters, uh, the essence of, of, of what these, these chapters are referring back to. In everything I do, 
not seeking my own advantage, but that many might be saved and to do all to the glory of God. Okay, with that in mind, let's go into this very touchy issue of how we relate to each other in the sense of headship. And uh, I want to, to go over verse 3. I, I did it pretty thoroughly uh, two weeks ago, but I, I think it's essential that we, we start it again you know, with that today. I want you to understand, Paul writes, that the head of every man is Christ. And he puts the words every here. Every man. Now, he's using man generic at this point. Every man. That means man, woman, child, every human. And he, he wants us to know that, that Christ is the head of humanity. And some people will say, well, He's not the head of the unsaved. Yeah, He actually is because He has the authority to do what? Ultimately judge them. They will be judged. He is the head over humanity. He will bring judgment. And, and for that matter, he, he judges the church as well. Uh, I still think of a verse that, that gives me chills at times and, and, and not necessarily in a positive way that we'll be held accountable for every word we say. And so, keep you know, this idea. Christ is the head of every man. He's the head of humanity. Uh, and then it says, and the, the, the head of the wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. And we see this idea of the head of the wife is her husband. And gosh, going back into the 60s really, uh, this started to come into contention in, in a lot of places and a lot of churches. In fact, I'll tell you, it's interesting. Uh, a lot of commentaries and, and even more so a lot of, of, of preaching. You go to uh, some of the main pastors that are preach, and you go online to their sermon index and you won't find 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as part of what they preach because it just isn't popular. Because you're saying something that really is you know, hard to understand, this idea of headship. And hopefully I can, I can help you with that this morning. The head of a wife is her husband. The head of Christ is, is God. By the way, that context right there, the head of... That, that statement there, the head of Christ is God, ought to start to give you some ideas of, of there's something bigger here than, than, than just this idea of who's in charge. You know, it's, it's the head of Christ is God, but Christ is God. He's equal with God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He became flesh, and He dwelt among us, revealed the glory of God. In Philippians, it says that He emptied Himself. Chapter 2 of Philippians says, He emptied Himself and became a man. The point where He emptied Himself was as if He had taken a coat off that was His identity of I am, I am God and He laid it at the feet of the Father and He became totally man. But not God in the flesh. Only something that God could do. And so we see this, and it says, "But yet God, is, you know, God the Father is the head over Christ the Son." And what that tells us is that that what Christ said, and it's it's such amazing words in the Garden of Gethsemane. What did He ask? Do you recall what He asked? 
he said he would rather not drink the cup. He says I, that this cup might not have to be drunk. You know, and, and the cup is is the the cup of judgment and death. He says I would I, I wished I didn't have to drink this. But and then very distinctly an interesting statement, really baffling at times when you think about it. Not my will, but your will, Father. Not my will, but your will. That's where you're seeing him in submission, subject to the Father. The Father is the head over the Son. God's basic order of things is Christ is the head over humanity. The husband is the head over the wife. And God is the head over Christ. And it's in, in within that framework is how everything comes into order. Well, verses 4 through 16 of chapter 11 is putting these principles into the worship at the church in Corinth. By the way, a reminder, I, I you know, you want to do something interesting, do a, a, a historical uh, study online of, of, the, of Corinth. And you'll find that Corinth is on this isthmus uh, tying Greece together and, 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 and uh, it's a very narrow spot and it's got a sea, big seaport on one side and then there was literally wood laid down. They would actually take a ship, pull it up into at the port and with animals and people together, pull it across this track and into the other sea because it was it was the fastest way rather than going around this uh, land uh, uh, this part of the of the the Mediterranean and uh, as a result, Corinth was a, a heavily populated area. it was uh, populated from many different cultures it was some people would say they use the term metropolis because it's multiple cultures of, and, and together. And uh, it was also, interestingly enough, uh, you know, a made, well, it was a major trade center as well. Uh, but its biggest notoriety, even at the time that we're talking about it here, and you know, a couple of hundred years prior to this time, and several hundred years after this time, Corinth was most noted for its immorality. It was a, it was truly a multicultural seaport, and and there was multiple temples of different religions, and some of those religions were uh, sexual related religions, and so there was prostitution that was in the streets to support those. Uh, temples and, and this type of thing, and it was it was you know uh, anything goes basically in the city of Corinth. There was a, 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 a lack of modesty, and not only uh, in the in the sense of, of of women, but just in general the way people talked, everything. And so it was. It was an interesting place for a church to be getting started. And 
it appears that some of that culture was falling over into the church. And so Paul has to address it. Why a veil? What is so important about a veil? And you start to think about it. it it's, it's, it's a piece of material that, 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 that basically covers this part of the face. It's a head covering, they call it, but that's because it comes around like this and actually comes down the side or down the front of, of, of the woman's clothing. And, and, and it allows her to be visual in the sense that her upper cheek and her lower forehead and, and her eyes are visible. But uh, she, other than that, it's, it's not there. And, and the reason for it, first off, was culturally right there in Corinth. A woman who was married and truly modest wore a veil. Because if she didn't, it was assumed that she was available. And there would be people that would go after her. The veil was a symbol of, I'm not available. Is there a symbol today that we have in in our husband-wife relationships that tell people we're not available? Wedding rings. Uh, you see, you know, a wedding ring. There are some people who actually, uh, I knew in, in, when I was in college, there were some people who actually uh, wore wedding rings so that they wouldn't be bothered. <laughs> and they weren't even married. <laughs> uh, but the idea is, is uh, you know, this was a symbol of, of a woman who was spoken for. And so a wife who has married would be wearing this veil. By the way, though, most modest women wore the veil. And people that were coming into Corinth that would be moving there for business, trade, or anything, because that was the kind of city it was, it would be like today, you know, people were were saying, you know, what are the the hubs? Well, it used to be San Francisco was a big hub of, of exchange and metropolitan exchange, if you will. And then after a period of time, it was Seattle, and right now it seems to be Portland. Uh, but but the idea is is that you know uh, people want to you know there's there's this mass uh, groups of people moving into these areas, and uh, and so here's this culture that that you're trying to fit into, and what Paul is basically saying: modest women wear a veil. How important, by the way, is it that women? And, and men support the context of modesty as Christians. And by the way, you know, men may not be because the clothing that we're generally uh, going to wear isn't an issue as much as it might be for a woman. Uh, you know, but the way we speak. What's your reputation outside of, of church? As to, you know, do people say, oh, there's something different about that person? See, our modesty breeds that. It, it, people look at it and say, he's just not, or she's just not like the rest of us. There's something different. By the way, Peter says that's, that's part of our testimony. A visual testimony. There's something different. 
an audible testimony. There's something different. And then when they ask you what it is, you can say, well, first and foremost, it's because I love Jesus Christ as my Savior and uh, I want to glorify Him in all things that I do. And it opens the door. It may shut a door for a while, but the opportunity for it to open a door is there as well. The head covering was simply a picture of a woman's modesty and the fact that she was making a statement of her desiring not to be approached, if you will. And the majority of those women were probably married. I have a friend, an acquaint- it, 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 I don't know where she is now, but, uh, this was a person that uh, I went to college and in, in high school and college with. My wife and I uh, helped sponsor her in a uh, uh, work that she did in, in uh, North Africa. Uh, she was Lebanese. And so she was very, she looked very much like the part of the culture that she was going to in Tunisia. Uh, in a small town, uh, town outside of the city of Tunisia to teach. And what she was teaching was English. You know, th- that was a big thing in the, in the North a- uh, Africa to the Mediterranean area. Almost all of those areas were wanting to make English part of their children's education. But she was not going to dress like any of those women. That was just all there was to it. She says, I'm an American woman. And uh, she read a handbook that, that had made a statement about modest dress. And she thought she was being pretty modest compared to what she might wear when she was at school in the United States. And she was sitting on the bus. And, uh, well, actually she got on the bus. And there was an empty seat. There was a guy sitting in this seat. And she sat down. Lots of other women standing, but there was an open seat, so she sat down. You see, a modest woman in the Arab culture would not sit down next to a man like that. Not that there was any threat or anything. It's just you don't do that. Riding along, she he uh, said something in Arabic. She was fluent in Arabic. And she said something back. And the next thing you know, they're talking. And the next thing you know, his arm went around and came down the side of her body. And he, he was thinking he was talking to a loose woman, for lack of better words. She happened to be carrying some knitting. <laughs> she jabbed him in the leg with her knitted needle. And according to the, her you know, explanation, it was the shock on his face was amazing. And when she got off the bus... Another group of guys were following her, and some people from the school, and some you know men from the school got and protected her because they knew who she was. That changed her attitude. But how important is it that we consider within the framework of who we are, our modesty as Christians? 
Now, someone might turn around and say, Pastor Bob, do you realize that you're preaching from the pulpit in shorts? Well, if you don't know, I have extreme neuropathy. And lay anything that rubs, you can even see the spots on my legs possibly, even from where you are, that anything that rubs on there, the next thing you know, I'm getting blisters and sometimes even little spots that bleed. So I didn't feel that God was calling me out of the pulpit with, you know, because I had neuropathy, but I had to make an adjustment. And uh, this congregation has been absolutely blessing me and letting me and allowing me to, to dress this way. There are some churches where I wouldn't be able to go into the pulpit unless I was in a three-piece suit with a, with a vest. So, you know, clothing can be important, but it can go overboard too. Now, it's obvious within the framework of our culture today the veil is not an, a super immediate thing or a hat. Clear into the 50s, women wore hats to church. I can remember my grandmother had quite the collection. And a big long hat pin to go through and make sure it didn't blow off when she walked to church. She didn't drive. And uh, I noticed that hats aren't necessarily important either anymore as I look through here this morning. So what we're looking at here, and, and Paul was not making, what I want to make sure you understand is Paul wasn't making a statement of law for the, for the faith in church and, and worship. What he was making was a cultural statement. For the culture you're in, are you glorifying God with the way you look, the way you dress, the way you speak, the way you think, uh, the, the things that, that people might watch you doing or hear you say? Are they understanding that you are unique, that, they, that you fit into that picture that Peter talks about of someone who stands apart from the general run of the mill in the framework of the culture that you're in? Does your Christianity speak for you in the way that you conduct yourself? I've had men and, and women in businesses tell me, well, you can't, you can't con- uh, be competitive in business and try to apply your Christian principles uh, in business practices. I don't think that stands before the throne of God. And I know a number of Christian people that God has absolutely blessed as they stood on their principles as Christians. Interestingly enough, there were some people within the community that wouldn't do business with them because they... they we're so anti-Christian. Metropolitan, Corinth, anything goes, noted for its immorality, lack of modesty. Paul says, we need to be modest. Now, there is this still this picture of headship. And the headship in the context of what we're looking at has to be understood. Paul, at one point, he says, "You know, I'm, I'm looking back at Genesis, and and first God, God created man, and then He created woman. How did He create woman? Well, she, He took a part of man and made her as His helpmate. And so there's this idea of headship is in, within that framework. And yet God told them both to what? To go out and and be fruitful 
and 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 be the regents of of the earth. I heard a really interesting lecture on the context of co-regents, king and queen kind of context. Okay, but you know, I finally found a statement that I really, really thought helped put this together. I've read it before, but I would like to read it again. You might be familiar with the Christian speaker and author, John Stott. And he wrote this in one of his articles. He first off started with, you know, headship. What is it, basically? Headship is the authority to... Do what? What do you think might fill that blank? Headship is the authority to rule over the woman? No, to rule over the woman was a part of the penalty of the fall. A woman is going to, you go back and read it, and, and, and you'll see it says a woman's basically going to long for her husband, but she, what she's going to get is a man that will rule over her. That's the fall in the framework of the of Christianity, we are counterbalancing that fall and we want to do what is of God and correct in that context. So, obviously, to rule over her isn't going to be part of this statement. And so, it's headship is the uh, authority to, and this sounds like an almost paradox, to serve. Isn't that an interesting phrase all in itself? Headship is the authority to serve. And tied to that word of authority is responsibility. I am responsible to serve my wife. In fact, Ephesians makes it really clear. The husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. How much did Christ love the church? He emptied himself, became a bondservant, and came and served her. The church, his bride. It is the authority to serve. He goes on, he says, if headship means power in any sense, then, and, and you've got to understand me, I love if-then equations. He says, if headship makes power, means power in any sense, then it is the power to care and not to crush. Power to serve, not to dominate. Power to facilitate self-fulfillment, not to frustrate or destroy. In all this, the standard of the husband love is to be the, that of, of Christ where Jesus offered Himself as a sacrifice for His bride, the church. This overall picture of chapter 11 you know, is basically to say, are we the modest people glorifying God that we are called to be? Men and female. Are we striving to, within the framework of our lives, to point to Christ? And by the way, Ephesians chapter 5 finishes up that picture of Christ serving the church where it says, 
Marriage is to be a picture of the church. The husband acting as Christ, ministering to his wife, and the wife receiving and acting as the church and ministering to him. Yes, Paul was referring to customs here. Obviously, it's not something we still do today. But the intent was to say, in all that we do, we are to modestly, in what we say, think, and do, and wear, glorify God in all the things that we can do with our words and, and our actions. In such a way, in adding Peter to this picture, someone might ask, why are you the way you are? I'll share my last little story with this. A number of years ago, Kathy and I and our kids moved from here back down to Southern California to take care of my mom who was terminally ill. And uh, the lady, fortunately, next door to my mom was a retired CNA, which is a person that works in a, in a, a medical rest home. Uh, and uh, so we paid her to take care of her during the day so I could work to pay my bills. My wife stayed with her mother 30 miles away with the kids because my mom couldn't handle the, the children. And... Uh, in working in the, the construction work that I was doing, a good friend of mine gave me a, a construction job and, and working with him and digging, uh, primarily uh, getting the underground and, and overhead electrical into a new mall that included a Gottschalks. And uh, the, uh, you know, just working there and, and doing my, my job, you know, and, and uh, the guy that was backhoe operator that worked with me, uh, keeping the ditch going ahead of me as we were laying the pipes and, and for the underground electrical, and, uh, you know, there was a, a couple of incidents, uh, you know, some dirt fell in on me, a pipe drops on my, my head, whatever, you know, and... Uh, he finally said, he said, I, I've, I've noticed you, you don't get all upset. And I said, oh, yeah, I get upset. <laughs> he says, yeah, but he says, you don't, you don't use swear words and cuss words and, and, and you don't get angry. And he says, and you don't get mad at me. <laughs> and and, and uh, I said, well, that's just you know, the way uh, it works with me. I, I said, uh, I have a, uh, a person that I'm under... Uh, obligation to, to to glorify and I said I'm a Christian he said oh that was the end of it he never said anything again until he and his girlfriend showed up at the church I was preaching in on Sundays uh, I was filling the pulpit for a pastor who was in the hospital with a heart attack and, and, and surgery and and uh, he said oh Bob I didn't know you were a pastor you know and uh it was really funny. The the next Monday morning, early, we got there really early in the morning to get our stuff laid out. 
He's over on the other side of the equipment yard, and it's still very quiet. And he stands up on his his uh, backhoe, and he hollers out, "Hey, Pastor Bob, how's it going?" And if you could have heard a pin drop before, you could definitely hear it drop then. And everybody looks around. Where's, where, where, they were looking for somebody with a collar, probably. You know. And I didn't stand up and say, "It's me, it's me." You know. But uh, it was interesting that the word got out, and from that day on, an interesting thing happened. First off, people did ask me questions here and there. But guys quit telling dirty stories and. They quit cussing around me. Now, you can look at that however you want, but the idea is it makes a difference. I had that happen at another place I worked while I was uh, in San Jose. And uh, there was one person who was bound and determined to bring me down, did everything that he could to do that. But uh, other people, when they were around me, there was a different attitude that was going on. So, I'm just going to suggest to you, we're called to examine ourselves on a regular basis. Not just on Sundays before communion. We're called to examine ourselves on a regular basis. And I'm just going to suggest to you, is there anything that we can do individually speaking that would improve our walk, our ministry, the way people perceive who we are. We don't have to wear a belt buckle that that flashes Jesus' name. All I'm saying is be prepared to, to ask God through His Holy Spirit working in you to create in you an environment of Christ that might cause somebody else to say, Man, you're different. Why? And be prepared, Peter says, to give a testimony. The uh, communion that we, as we share it, uh, we have two trays up here. One is a packet. You pull off the the top part, and there's a wafer underneath that, and then you pull off the next section, and there's the 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 grape juice underneath that, and. some people prefer that. We, on the other side, we have it just to two cups. The top cup is the grape juice, and underneath is a cup that has the bread. And you can just you know pick that up, and we'll share the bread and the, and the cup together. While we're singing the communion song, I'm going to ask you to come up and pick up your communion from up here and uh, take it back to the seat. But hold it until we've all been served and, and the song is over, and we'll share communion together. for uh, just speaking to, to God about your own life and, and preparing your heart for communion.
So uh, do either one, but uh, let's go ahead and sing. chapters and the parts that uh, BJ preached on last week is a section of communion starting with verse 23 in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night that He was betrayed took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke the bread. And He said, This is My body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. 
Jesus continued and said, Paul record, uh, records this, in the same way also Jesus took the cup. And after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Let us share the cup. Father, once again we come to this time of sharing at the table the emblems that remind us of Your sacrifice for us. It takes us to the cross. But it also reminds us as we share in this verse where as often as we eat this, we, we do it until you, know, you come again. And we do it together. And Lord, we look for that day. But in the meantime, we look at it and say, thank You. Thank You for Your sacrifice. Thank You for Your love. Thank You for Your mercy. Thank You for Your grace that You have lavished out on us. We worship and praise You. We ask that You would go with us. Cause us to be the men and women of Your church that You want us to be. That we might be a testimony that many might be saved. And that all that we do would glorify You. Again, we worship You, we praise You, and ask now that You would go with us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Would you stand as we close? On victory in Jesus. Just as